This June marked 20 years since the Thessaloniki summit, when the leaders of the European Union promised EU membership for the Western Balkans region. 20 years after the significant event, prospects for the region to join the EU in the near future appear vague. Unremitting obstacles, unfair delays, and the use of vetoes by members have all weakened the EU's credibility. The Western Balkans, on the other hand, present an evident stalemate on the EU-related reform process. In addition to the ongoing bilateral disputes, unresolved past issues and backsliding of democracies. In the meantime, many formats for alternate, staged or partial integration are being discussed as alternatives until the full accession. But are those alternatives a good choice for the current fragile democracies of the region? Or would they pave the way for undue influence from other geopolitical actors? And how does the uncertainty for the region's integration affect the perception of Western Balkan citizens of the EU? Hi, my name is Gail Rago, and I'm your host for this episode of the Bold Europe podcast. In this episode, we'll discuss the European integration of the Western Balkans countries, and the causes of the stall of the enlargement process. We will also explore the democratic backsliding in Western Balkans in terms of derogation of human rights and the security landscape of the area. To uncover this complex and urgent topic, our guests today are Agon Malici, a policy analyst, activist and media writer. His most recent work has focused on political risk, growing democratic backsliding, and the resilience to authoritarianism. Lela Gacanica is the program officer at Quina Tilquina Foundation, independent legal counsel, and researcher about Bosnia and Herzegovina. Agon and Lela are both members of the Western Balkan Six Strategy Group. Initiated by the Heinrich Bull Stiftung, the group is consisting of prominent civil society representatives from the Western Balkan countries continuously advocating for revitalizing the EU accession process and its precondition, rule of law reforms for the Western Balkans. Welcome, Agon and Leila. Hi. Hi. Let's start this conversation by exploring the EU enlargement processes. With Russia's war on Ukraine raging on its eastern border, the EU enlargement in the Western Balkans has become an urgent matter. For Brussels. But there are some security issues that need to be resolved first, especially related to Kosovo and Serbia. Agon, can you explain to us what is going on between these two countries and what role is the EU playing in the negotiation process? Well, the EU has been a facilitator of the dialogue. The dialogue happens within the framework of the EU because the EU has this ability to condition both countries. But it has failed in this role over the last decade because enlargement has stalled. So the main incentive has been removed. And I think this is why we've seen the failure in implementation. So this year we've had two major agreements reached between Kosovo and Serbia and we saw an escalation in violence. So it's getting very hard for the agreements to stick. So what's happening right now is that we have an agreement between the two countries on a pathway to normalization, but we have a disagreement on the sequencing of steps and who does what first, because both sides do not really trust each other and they don't trust that the EU can actually enforce the other side to hold its side of the bargain. So maybe in a nutshell, that's the kind of the explanation of where we are. 
understand that it is not just the negotiation process that has stalled. Serbia and Kosovo's access to the EU is also on hold, as the EU Commission has repeated at the beginning of November. Why are Serbia and Kosovo still a long way from entering the EU? And how is the relation between the two countries affecting the access process? In the Balkans, we were very frustrated with uh, how enlargement has stalled on the EU side. And that has been conveniently used by political elites in the Balkans who are more than happy to not pursue this path. In case of Serbia, it's not just Kosovo dispute that is the problem. It's also going backwards in terms of rule of law and democracy. In case of Kosovo, Kosovo cannot uh, have a path towards the EU because it's not recognized by five EU members. So resolving the dispute is the key bottleneck right now. It's it's a complex dispute involving historical legacies and things like that. It's also politically sensitive in both countries. Compromises are hard and especially hard when you don't see an incentive. The Balkans are a bit traumatized, even though now with Ukraine there's more talk of enlargement. If we look at the Western Balkans, we can see that Kosovo and Serbia aren't the only countries aspiring to be EU members in the area. Bosnia-Herzegovina is interested in entering the EU too. But the accession talks will start only once the country meets some specific criteria, including democracy and the rule of law. Lela, why did the Commission mention these two criteria? Basically, there is 14 key priorities for Bosnia and Herzegovina when we talk about accession to EU. However, rule of law and definitely democracy is something that should be on our side because there is a backsliding when we talk about, in particular, human rights and democracy in Bosnia and Herzegovina. We are witnessing very legal oppression in Republika Srpska, one of the entities uh, of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Two laws have been introduced with the intention to reduce uh, civil society voices, but also alternative voices and criticism towards governments and political elites. And I'm afraid that EU haven't done much in the process of adopting these laws. And at the same time, this gives a different uh, signals to the government of Bosnia and Herzegovina, thinking that these things could pass and still being on the path towards EU. That's why I think it should be very clear that there is no accession without fulfilling these key priorities. Thanks, Leila. Before we move on to the next one, Agon, do you think you could give us a little recap of the relationship between Serbia and Kosovo, just to kind of understand the history a little bit? Kosovo in 2008 declared its uh, independence uh, through a UN-mediated uh, process, but which Serbia did never agree to in the end. So Kosovo was recognized by most of the democratic and Western world, more than 100 countries, and it's striving to join the EU and NATO, and it's very pro-Western in that sense. But so the whole point has been to get Serbia to come to terms with this reality. For Serbia, there is actually no other way forward except for Serbia to accept what is actually reality on the ground and to move forward in EU accession or move towards the West. I think a key element that needs to be mentioned here is the role of Russia. Russia has a very, very keen interest in not allowing this dispute to be resolved and Kosovo and Serbia to normalize their relations. So what we're talking about now is a process of normalizing relations between states and not necessarily between societies. That's a more long-term process of dealing with the past. But at least if we can achieve to make this political agreement first, that will create the space for the social process. Even a couple of months ago, we even had an armed insurgency in the north of Kosovo, started by Kosovo Serbs and instigated by Serbia, which threatened to become a bit of a regional conflict. So the north of Kosovo has become the biggest security hotspot outside of Ukraine and Europe right now because it's an area close to Serbia where Serbs are a majority and where there are these secessionist tendencies. So without actually resolving the issue of the border and the recognition of one another, we will keep seeing these security crises emerge. 
Thanks so much, Argon. That was really helpful. This is our traditional Did You Know section, where we provide an additional piece of context to the podcast conversation. So before moving on with our interview, it's useful to say that this past week, the EU adopted the latest enlargement package of 2023. President von der Leyen has stated that the enlargement remains a common interest for the stability of Europe as a region, which has been clearly affected by the ongoing developments since the war in Ukraine. Coinciding with the new enlargement package of 2023, an advocacy visit of the Heinrich Bolt Stiftung Western Balkans 6 strategy group is taking place this week, with multiple meetings taking place at several levels of EU institutions and other interlocutors. In this regard, the Western Balkans 6 strategy group will advocate on numerous issues and concerns and will also provide a number of concrete recommendations for a reframing of the EU integration of Western Balkans region. One of the topics that needs to be addressed is Euroscepticism, a sentiment that has risen in the past years among the Western Balkan countries. I'd now like to explore a bit the relationship between the Western Balkans and the EU. Leila, you talked about the lack of responsibility by the EU. So I'd like to ask you, how does it affect the perception of the EU among citizens of Bosnia-Herzegovina? When we talk about international presence in Bosnia and Herzegovina, we should go maybe back to 1990s and when the Dayton Peace Agreement was settled down and when the peace was installed, but also constitution and many different things that basically marked our political system in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Geopolitical position of Bosnia and Herzegovina is very important when we talk about accession to EU. We have the pro-Russian current um, basically uh, mostly expressed in Republika Srpska, one of the entity of Bosnia and Herzegovina, and then we have this pro-EU current, but at the same time, we have something in between. We should be aware that our accession path lasts over 20 years. It's not all responsibility on EU institution, but definitely on the national government. However, EU haven't always been a good ally, but we should be aware that this time is very crucial for Bosnia and Herzegovina. We are often seeing the things happening between Kosovo and Serbia. We are always looking at the possible spilling effect on Bosnia and Herzegovina. Also, when we talk about Ukraine and Russia, we see this possible spilling effect. So talking about peace and joining Bosnia and Herzegovina to EU, it really means the stability and the safety of the region, same as for the Kosovo and Serbia disputes it is. Agon, would you like to react to that as well? We have a general crisis of trust and credibility of the EU. The Balkans have a lot of faults, and uh, I think most people are aware that we need a lot of reforms uh, to be ready for the EU, but it's kind of a two-way dance. And um, for the past decade, we've not had a policy of enlargement, and uh, that has fueled a lot of disappointment, disillusionment, and uh, bureau skepticism, even among the most pro-EU forces in the Balkan countries. I think a central role here is played by Serbia, where its ambiguity about whether it wants to join the EU or not is a key problem. This geopolitical game of basically blackmailing the EU through the threat of Russia has played a very important role. If you follow Serbian media, for example, especially those with more pro-Russian narrative, which is most of Serbian media, they are the ones basically building the image of the EU in negative terms. So it's state-sponsored media that are actually building anti-EU sentiments in Serbia. And this had the regional spillover effects. When the Ukraine war started, I think the fear of all of us in the Balkans was that the Balkans will become a second front. Russia has an interest in creating as much turmoil anywhere it 
can, and especially around EU and NATO territory. So now we're in a context where instead of talking about enlargement, we're more more of a security threat. And uh, the EU has, I think, woken up a little bit and saying, okay, we need to resolve this and we need to move forward with Western Balkan accessions. But a lot of damage has been done, irreversible damage has been done over the last 10 years. Thanks, Agon. Leila, actually, similar to my question to Agon, I wonder if you could just flesh out a little bit the history and kind of the conflict in the Bosnia-Herzegovina region. In 1990s, when uh, former Yugoslavia started to dissolve, Bosnia-Herzegovina proclaimed the independence. That was the first time that we are having like multi-party election system and elections in Bosnia-Herzegovina. And aggression from uh, Serbia on Bosnia-Herzegovina started in that period of time. After the four years of war in Bosnia-Herzegovina, Dayton Peace Agreement was adopted and that basically stopped the armed conflict in Bosnia-Herzegovina. However, this agreement, given the legal instrument to the political leaders and political elites to proceed with their politics of division of the people based on the ethnicity. So we are witnessing in Bosnia and Herzegovina now, 30 years after the war ended, conflicted narratives about the war to preserve not only the political positions and the power, but also to preserve fear among citizens by uh, from time to time announcing new possibility of the conflict. And you can also imagine how that affects people and basically, EU are playing really significant role in this because one of the key priorities for Bosnia and Herzegovina accession process is this dealing with the past and transitional justice, which is not being processed in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Well, and EU unfortunately is not pushing for this priority at all. We are witnessing open denial of the war crimes and the genocide in Bosnia and Herzegovina. We are witnessing two schools under one roof teaching different histories, different different geography. We are witnessing a very painted political media. We are witnessing shrinking space for civil society. We cannot have reforms and we cannot see progress if we don't include all the actors in the society. If we are talking only with the political elites, that do not have interest, basically, to do a sincere reforms. Everything that has been built in these 30 years is based on ethnic division, is based on ethnic-driven policy. And this is something that is maybe even the hardest to fight against, especially when we combine that with corruption and with the lack of rule of law in Bosnia and Herzegovina. We are still a country, and I'm not sure what kind of transition is that. Thanks so much for painting that very distressing overview. That was very helpful. My next question is actually for both of you. What can we expect in the foreseeable future in terms of EU enlargement? Will Serbia, Kosovo and Bosnia-Herzegovina be part of the EU family by 2030, a deadline that was set by the EU Council President Charles Michel? Lela, we can start with you. I'm afraid we are not joining EU by 2030, unfortunately. But this could be a good period to really do some reforms and to regain the trust in the government, but also in EU. We had a small push last year, December, when the candidate state status was given to Bosnia and Herzegovina. It was not merit-based. It was political decision. I'm also quite skeptical that Western Balkans will join. It's also not just because of countries not being ready and having these disputes. It's also 
the EU is not maybe ready yet. How do you manage a complex EU with so many members and add more members, actually? Uh, so, And the enlargement process has been complicated so much in terms of decision-making that it, there's a lot of power given to individual member states to block. In case of Kosovo, you have four or five non-recognizers. So this has nothing to do with whether the country is meeting criteria or is doing reforms. So I'm really skeptical that things will move forward. So we have talked about the EU enlargement from an institutional point of view. But I think it's also important to know how will citizens benefit from this enlargement? Agon, we can start with you. So I think the benefit would be security, economical, but also then obviously in terms of human rights. Accession process is also a state building kind of uh, process because we have a framework of how to build a state and how to reform a state. And without that external framework, sometimes we don't have the capacity to do some of these things on our own. So it's a clear multi-layer benefit. Lela. I would like to emphasize that like, Maybe 10 years ago, uh, EU meant actually a hope for the citizens of the Western Balkan. That changed in terms of euroscepticism. And now I think it is really important not to be felt out of the Europe. It is something that gives a feeling of not being secured and uh, definitely left out of the improvement and progressive life. For the citizens of the Western Balkan, it should mean improvement of the legal framework, harmonization with the standards of human rights rights, and especially in implementation and not only in prescribing reforms as such. This also should mean an improvement and dialogue and transparent procedures with civil society and with the media and a secure place for criticism and for improvement of the society as such. It is definitely something that could improve people's life in terms of better working condition, in terms of existential issues. Thank you. I feel like we've covered a lot. Any final thoughts from either of you? I think uh, it's important to understand that uh, what what happened in Ukraine is an alarm and that uh, it won't stop with Ukraine if this drags on uh, and if Europe doesn't see the security implications of not integrating the Western Balkans and doesn't find a way of doing the internal reforms that will make this possible, there's a likelihood that this could also become a security problem in the near future. It is important to understand what are the struggles in the Western Balkans, like being in between Uh, nationalistic governments and being in between EU. And I think uh, a clearer message from the EU should be sent to the citizens, not to the political elites. Thank you so much, Agon and Leila, for your insights and for joining us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of the 12th episode of the Bull Europe podcast, the podcast of the European Union office of the Heinrich Bull Stiftung in Brussels. As usual, we invite you to visit our website at eu.bol.org. And until the next episode, goodbye.